Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Makuchi, and you are listening to the Jazzes Podcast. Hello, everybody. Jazz is online editor Matt Mikuchi here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today. A series that we simply like to call the Jazz is Podcast. And it's brought to you in conjunction with Jazz is Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz is editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. Today we are honored to have saxophonist, bandleader and composer Brian McCarthy as our guest. In this episode, we'll delve into the depths of his latest musical venture, a non-ed album titled Afterlife, which follows in the footsteps of his critically acclaimed work, The Better Angels of Our Nature, a captivating exploration of the Civil War era's music and stories through ingenious compositions and reimaginings of folk classics. With Afterlife, McCarthy's artistic horizons have expanded to a cosmic scale. While initially contemplating various cultural interpretations of life after death, he found himself drawn more to the wonders of science than spirituality. Join us as we unravel the grand concept behind this project and gain insights into the remarkable ensemble he assembled for this cosmic journey. We'll also shine a light on the importance of his creative partnership with producer Linda Little, uncover stories from his formative years and gain a glimpse into his thoughts and inspirations. Get ready for a captivating conversation that ventures into the boundless landscapes of musical creativity with Brian McCarthy. Fire up on Audiotini and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Jazzes Podcast. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the Jazzes Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's kind of a tradition for these podcasts that I've been getting into as of late, actually since the beginning, because, you know, as I like to put it, I like to collect memories from people uh, who I talk with. And it's a great icebreaker question, this one, because it's just asking the artists I speak with to just share a childhood memory with me of when they realize that when they think back to it, they realize that's maybe where my fascination with music started from. And that's where it all began for me. Do you have one such memory that you could share with us? I do. It's always been a really specific one, too. I remember when I was in, I was probably like 13 or 14 years old. So it was, you know, 1989, oh no, 1990, early 90s. I want to say how old I am. <laughs> um, but early 90s. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I played saxophone. I was good at music, but, you know, played soccer, sports, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, I had a particular uh, knack for the music end of things. So uh, my parents uh, had me. Uh, they had recorded on, uh, you know, PBS stations, the uh, Newport Jazz Festivals from like probably the late 80s or something like that. And they were like, you should listen to this. So I was like, all right, cool. Well, you know, I'll, I'll do that. So I pop in VHS tape, you know, if anyone listening knows what a VHS tape is. Um, it's the it's the YouTube of our era, right? That's the closest <laughs> analogy to it. So pop in the VHS tape and, uh, you know, comes up and it's... Uh, 
uh, Grover Washington Jr.'s playing. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm into a saxophone player, you know, kind of dug what was going on. And then next, uh, it was Kenny G. And I was not so much into it. I'm sorry. Let's fast forward a little bit. We'll go on to the next player. And then this, uh, you know, young guy, Branford Marsalis, comes on next. And I, I mean, I remember listening to this and it just struck me like a, I call it the lightning bolt moment where it struck me like a lightning bolt of like, even though I, I couldn't fully comprehend or perceive everything that was going on, on on what they were playing, it just hit me in that, you know, in my soul and the like essence of who I am. And I was like, that's I, I have to do this. This is what I have to do. Like, I don't care what else I do in life. I have to do this. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was like still like very vivid to this day of like sitting in my living room and just like being kind of like blindsided by I didn't expect to connect with something like that. I was just watching a VHS tape and then, you know, bam, life changing moment. Yeah. So, but, but from what you uh, just told me, then you had already been playing the saxophone before you had this, uh, as you said, like life changing moment. Yeah. You know, like playing in, uh, you know, the middle school bands and things like that. So, you know, I, I, had, yeah, I had been playing the saxophone, but, you know, just like everybody else, I was just playing an instrument, essentially. Uh, of course, getting into music is never, it's, you know, it's not the easiest career choice. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> wait, so wait, it's not? Well, I, this is the first I've ever heard of it. Right. I, in, in fact, I would expand that to all of the arts, you know, it can be quite challenging. Mm. And so, oh, yeah. uh, so how did you face those challenges early on? Because, you know, obviously the prospects of, you know, having a stable job a career maybe your parents sometimes you know i talk to a lot of artists and their parents are not totally supportive and what was it like for you <laughs> i i had i had fully supportive parents um you know they were you know they knew i wanted to go in this direction and i think they just trusted that i would be able to figure it out however i i could make that happen and, you know i think you know the idea yeah I, I didn't have the parents who were like music is in a stable industry and you'll never be able to make a, a living and how about grandchildren and you right. know stuff like that they were um <laughs> they weren't that type um they were just like wow you 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 seem to be really all in on this so go forth and prosper however you can um so yeah i mean they were uh they were always encouraging of you know i i was that i wasn't a i wasn't a difficult kid i was like one of those like cute little adorable kids that never got into into trouble ah. uh so i think they they gave me a lot of you know a lot of rope there has that changed in any ways do you not like to get into the occasional travel trouble maybe steal a, the odd chocolate bar from the corner store <laughs> Listen, listen, I'm I'm a full on adult, man. Whenever I want a chocolate bar, I just go out and get one. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. Uh, you know, I, I like uh, like I said, I'm I'm really uh, fascinated and eager to talk with you about your some of your recent project, but also, you know, when I think about it, uh, it, it, when I mentioned your journey in music, it's been quite fascinating. In recent years, though, you have uh, kind of established your prowess within the non-et uh, tradition. What is it that fascinates you about this format, this setting, and what's kind of made it eventually, especially in the, you know the latter years, primary vehicle for your creativity? Yeah, I, I mean, I I've always loved uh, whether I knew it or not. I've always loved large ensemble writing and and uh, composing and arranging. That sort of uh, you know, like going back to my college years. 
And that was when I first got introduced to uh, the Joe Lovano 9A. Like I studied with Gary Smolian for a number of years at William Patterson. And that was a, like yet another connection to that 9A. Um, and from the get-go, when I first heard it, I was I was blown away. I was like, whoa, this is like one of the coolest big bands. And be like, Gary, this is like one of the coolest big bands I've ever heard. You know, like kid from Vermont, not really exposed to all that much stuff. I'm like, this is the greatest thing since ever. And he was like, well, I mean, it's not a full big band. It's only, you know, essentially six horns and, and Joe as a solo. I was like, wait a second. What? It's not a full big band? Like mind blown moment. And I just, man, I, every album, every chance I got to see, the, you know, them play at the Vanguard in New, wherever they were playing in New York. It's like, Gary, get me on the guest list. Come on, man. I'm broke. Help. Um, so, you know, I'd see them when I could. And then just fine. And then he was just, you know, again, again, you seem to be really, hey, kid, you seem to be really into this. He was also, here's another group I was, uh, uh, that, you know, Gary was in, uh, which was the George Coleman Octet. Like, you might like this too. I'm like, man, really love this group as well. Uh, when I was in college at, at William Patterson, I, I did uh, what they call a concept group, which is like the music of blah, blah, blah. And uh, Gary was like, you should do the music of the George Coleman Octet. And I was like, absolutely. So again, just that um, that like mini big band or that large mini band, however you want to view it. Um, th- there's so much creativity and so many like fun colors, beautiful colors and voices that you can deal with that. Um, I just love the sound of it. And then when it came time to kind of choosing where I was going to go, uh, you know, what my path would be for grad school, I knew I kind of wanted to go into writing. Um, and so I started just kind of create like making, uh, making non-net arrangements of, of, you know, jazz standards. And, you know, I did uh, uh, Benny Golson's Whisper Knot was like the first non-net. I mean, literally was the first non-net thing I, I tried my hand at. Just like, I have piano skills. Let me see it. Like, you know, all right. So my my thumb, that's the baritone saxophone. My index finger, that's the trombone. You know, like I just kind of signed that. And well, it sounds good on piano. Let me kind of, you know, write these out to those individual horns and see how that works. And it and it worked out pretty worked out really well, I guess. Yeah. So then, when I went into grad school, I was kind of you know I, I studied w- with Rich DeRosa, Jim McNeely, and Bill Mobley. And I remember Rich telling me like you know non edits because this is two thousand and five, and back then we were talking about the practicality of being able to tour a full on seventeen eighteen person jazz orchestra. It, even back then, it wasn't a practical idea. It's just, you know, so expensive. Hotel rooms, fee- it's like feeding an army yeah. and like, you know, per diem, travel, all this kind of, and plus, you know, artist fee. Uh, it's, it's a lot to financially cover. So the idea of being able to have half that number, but still create that fullness of orchestration and sound um, is something you very much can do. I mean, like, I, you know, I'll, people often, um, they'll comment on how when, when they listen to the non-ed, uh, my non-ed, they'll be like, I, I didn't realize it was only nine people. It's just, there's a way that you can, you know, like Rich uh, and Jim and, and Bill, they kind of taught a way that you can write uh, with this number that sounds greater than the, you know, some of its parts. Yes, and not to mention that uh, the Nanette is a great ensemble to sustain some of the concepts that you have brought to the fore with your recent projects, which are kind of wide ranging, even though, you know, and specifically we'll be talking about, we'd be talking about two albums, uh, 2017's The Better uh, Angels of Our Nature and now uh, Afterlife. 
but yeah, is that another reason why you like to work within uh, the non-net uh, format? Because essentially, it also allows you to express these wider concepts. It was Civil War before, now it's something else that we'll be getting into later, but... Yeah, I, when you get into these, you know, heavy subjects, um, artistically speaking, I want to be able to use a large swath of colors to to capture those human emotions of like, you know, extreme joy and extreme sorrow and everything in between. And, and the more colors that I get to have at my disposal, uh, the more of that emotion that I can I can really dig into. I mean, like for me, piano, bass, and drums. You know, it's not just three parts right there. You're talking; it's really more four or five parts just within those three quote unquote three people. Um, and then you add the six horns into it. Again, it's more than just six horns because of the different permutations of everything that you can do: left hand piano with bass and baritone or bass and uh bass and tenor saxophone bass and baritone like you know just the combinations just keep going and going and going and there's just a lot of different timbres which for me translate into different feelings and emotions and uh, yeah it's nice to have that at the disposal to handle something like the better angels of our nature dealing with you know like we're talking about it. I, the tagline for the tagline for better angels of our nature, you know, a time before jazz existed, but crucial to its existence. Mm. Like it's very, very heavy. Like when I teach jazz history, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to teach uh, jazz history a number of semesters at different colleges. And when we start, you know, like one of the first questions students will always ask me is, you know, why am I taking the, you know, why jazz? What's the big deal with this jazz thing? And, Starting them off in that, you know, American Civil War era, um, you know, the 1860s, give or take, it uh, it sets the stage for what's going to take place for the rest of that semester. And it starts to bring into focus the gravity of this art form and its importance of it. So, yeah, having, um, you know, back into the, the non-at form with either Better Angels or Afterlife, heavy subjects kind of require the ability to to paint with a lot of different colors right and if i can just deviate for a second because i said something uh, you said something interesting that i always kind of like to get into it's as important from what you said i i think that's what you that's what you think too to know about the history of the music as well as the techniques and all the music theory that you can learn yeah oh absolutely uh when i uh this is probably 12, 13 years ago when I first had the opportunity to teach a jazz history class. Like, you know, my undergrad was, you know, uh, you know, jazz studies performance and then master's was, you know, composition and arranging. You know, I wasn't a history major. So then this, you know, opportunity, someone was taking a sabbatical and a class opened up at, at one of the colleges near me and uh, they contacted me about teaching the jazz history course that semester. And Ray Vega, who's one of my uh, running buddies up here, he lives in Vermont. Uh, you know, we've been playing together now for over 15 years. And uh, back then I was like, you know, he's my, he's, he's a great friend and a great mentor. So I'm like, right. Oh, geez, man, I. I don't know what to do about this. Should I teach this class? I mean, I haven't taught it. I'm not a history major. Like, I, you know, I'm a performance major. Like, I, you know, he's like, shut up and teach the class. I was like, yes, sir. Okay, I will do it. Um, he was like, this is important for you to do it. Do it. Don't worry. You'll be great at it. You'll figure it out. You'll land on your feet. And, you know, after teaching that one class, and certainly, you know, teaching three, four, or five of them since then, that connection with the history of the music, 
opened up doors that I never thought about in the artistic end of it. You know, the importance of it, like the more I, it just, it connected me with the art form so much more than I ever thought possible. And it was, again, another aha moment of like, oh, this is what he was getting at. He was like, connect yourself with the history of like, and, and now I, you know, I pay that forward. I, I teach that um, to all my students who are, you know, trying to go in, into whatever field that they're doing, whatever you're trying to be, connect yourself with the history of it and you will be that much more in what you're trying to be you know math politics science theology music and the arts connect yourself with the history of it and you will be so much more what you're trying to be like honestly what you're trying to be not emulating what you're trying to be but actually be a part of it The track you are hearing is from Brian McCarthy's latest non-ed album, Afterlife, available now. We'll resume our conversation with the artist momentarily, but first, I wanted to remind you that if you love jazz and vinyl, you should check out Jazz's Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz's editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz's, jazzes.com, and these Jazz's podcasts. Go to jazzes.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. And now, back to our conversation with Brian McCarthy. And, uh, you know, when we think uh, back to your 2017 record, The Better Angels of Our Nature, that explored the Civil War era. And uh, so that was maybe even, you know, a more obvious i guess link with history so that would lead one to think that maybe afterlife with its concept that refers to something else the universe uh, the concepts of life and death mortality astronomy spirituality is uh, it doesn't have as many links but you can still hear them in the music i think right yeah i, I think so too because uh, some people kind of jokingly be like oh you went you know back uh, 150 so odd years and now you're going back uh, like four and a half billion years, you know, it's like, it's like just a little bit further back to draw in those connections. But yeah, there, you know, when we, um, you know, my wife, Linda Little is also my producer. Uh, she's, um, she's been, she's produced all of our, uh, all of our projects. And when I say producer, I mean like from the get go, we talk about the, the conception of the group uh, uh, or this conception of the project. And then when I'm sitting and I'm writing, you know, little sections and all that, we'll back and forth and bleep, and I, when I say back and forth, I mean like back and forth, like a like a Wimbledon, like seventeen twenty point rally. Like we'll go back and forth, yeah. and it's intense. Uh, might be some yelling involved occasionally too. But you know, when you trust someone that much, like you know, we're really getting into um, into the importance of the you know whatever section that I'm writing about. And say, so what do you think about this melody? Um, how's this vibe here? What in like you know? So we get a lot of. Um, we got a lot of that that connection there. So uh, when we were ta- when we finished up uh, 
Better Angels in 2017. It was like, all right, album's out. What's next? Like we were already talking about, like the album's probably was out for like a like a month or two, and we were already talking about what the next project was going to be. And the early stages of that was Afterlife. You know, the different uh, concepts of, uh, of of afterlife from different cultures. You know, we were even thinking about going to you know just not just covering. Uh, Christianity or um, Jewish concepts of afterlife, but also going into ancient, maybe ancient Rome, ancient Greece, uh, ancient uh, Egyptian afterlife concepts and studying that. Um, but I also wanted to include a scientific one, uh, which was, you know, essentially everything that makes us, us and the you know planet that we're on and the devices that we use and the atmosphere that we breathe all was once just a part of this one giant object. Um, you know, the, the stellar nebula, the, the, some people call it the primordial nebula, which before that was a star, you know, it was, it was a, a, an earlier version of the sun. Um, and when I started talking about that, Linda kind of hit pause and it was like, you know what? I think this is the project. Like this is the entirety of the project. Cause she was like, your eyes are lighting up as you're talking about this to me. So I think this is where we focus in. So it is, it's kind of, there's like, you know, the, the observable universe along with, I mean, like to me, science has so much artistic nature in it. I mean, you have to be a really creative thinker to, to deal with these concepts that are so far and so large away from us. Um, you know, the interpretations of what does a black hole look like? And then now we're starting to get actual images of what that looks like and those images are actually kind of close to what the interpretations were you know certainly now with uh, the james webb telescope and the images that are coming back from that i mean literally the album art is based off of one of those uh, early james webb uh, images that came back like so it's um yeah it's it's a heavy subject there. there and there's it's mixed with science it's mixed with art and creativity it's mixed with observation it's mixed with conjecture it, there's a lot uh, there's a lot there yeah and uh you know it was there a moment though uh, that prompted you to delve and think about life after death more than perhaps before um at the time i don't know i don't think there was any um you know there wasn't any one moment that triggered that thought i think i mean they got just always been thinking about it, it was just it's such a fascinating i like i remember this was a concept that I remember reading about like when I was in high school and just kind of blown away by, you know, like, oh, well, wait, what? Everything, like all the molecules in my body were all the molecules in your body. Like we were all part of just one, like, man, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. That's, you know, 1990s, man, that's deep. That's like, wow, bro. Um, you know, just one of those, um, those heavy moments that just went into my subconscious for years and years and years and was just probably scratching at the back of my mind waiting for the right moment to like come out and you know be expressed in in a particular way and uh, yeah the the opportunity to do that with the non because initially when you know like when i was writing non stuff in college it was you know standards creative arrangements like oh that was cool like fun chord right here like it, it it had a great academic uh quality to it but better angels kind of that opened the door and an une unexpectedly opened the door into that really deep 
end of the pool artistic realm that everyone's trying to swim towards um, where we get to make these heavy artistic statements that also connect with people so when we uh, when we did that that better angels project and unexpectedly found that we just were doing that naturally we were doing that with our projects um, going into the next non at project we we you know if, if you have another opportunity to deal with heavy subjects and make people feel again a large range of human emotions but let's do that again and that the the idea of afterlife kind of you know and it's something that everyone can certainly relate to and connect with i mean literally we all we all are connected to that concept this is something else that you said too and and i could hear it in the music and i'd, I'd love for you to maybe talk about it a bit more that uh, aside from the spiritual side there's also the scientific side, the more earthly, physical side. And I wondered whether mm-hmm. that too, how that kind of became part of the music. Was this a conscious thing? And uh, whether this, this balance was part of the starting concept? Yeah, no, I, I think it, I, I think absolutely was. Um, because, I mean, these are, like I said, like in, in the afterlife, um, you know, just the conceptual part of the, of the album, the, the heavy subjects, big, broad, you know, giant nebulas, supernovas, uh, transference of energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, man? Like, what's the big deal with all of this stuff? Like, connection is always for for the art that my wife and I make. Like, th- that's an important thing. It's not just. I mean, art is art is inherently selfish it has to be you know it has to be certain levels of you know like that's just it's narcissism in a monetized way yeah. um but it, it it has to be um but at the same time i think every probably 99% of the artists out there they, they want to have a connection or they want people to appreciate the art that they're doing um you know we we keep that in mind certainly like we want uh as many people that uh that are interested in creative things that will appreciate what we're doing. So having, you know, like making sure that we can ground a project in a way that more people can come to and appreciate is, is certainly at the, um, certainly within the mix of everything that we're doing. I mean, we're definitely, we're not uh, the type of people that will go, Oh, well, we can't do this artistically because people won't like it. It's really, that's, that's not the question. It's like, no, no, do what the music wants to be done like if the music says do this do this and then try to keep that narrative grounded with people to like you know a bridge that they can walk over and come to the music more easily so yeah taking these large concepts like what's the whole point of it well it all leads to us here and now and what we're doing what we've done what we're currently doing and what we'll be doing in the future um and you know throughout all of that also keep in mind that we have that connection inherent to our you know the molecules that make up our body no matter how different we might think we are from one another we're always going to be connected uh in that way and literally connected to everything around us so musically speaking you know while you're actually composing the piece do you think about that too and are, and is that balance that i you know that i'm referred to earlier the spiritual with the with the scientific is that present also let's say, quote unquote, on paper as you're conceiving and composing the piece. Yeah, I I think so. You know, like, it's hard to, you know, like, well, it's not hard. It's, you know, there are ways of trying to, like, explain uh, words through the, you know, like, words, words are words. But 
all words don't mean exactly what they're saying. What what means more, like the the meaning behind the words, the way we say them, the framework that goes into it. That's what starts to create the emotion and um, you know the responses from what we're saying. Music does that. It, it it does that without the word part. Like you take the words out of it, but you can still remain the intent of what you're trying to say and what you're trying to express. Hmm. So yeah, while I'm writing. The while I'm writing, you know, whether it's Nonet or Big Band or Quartet or just a, a song itself, um, there are certain things through, you know, specifically in the Nonet, there are certain things in there, harmonically speaking, um, textually speaking, that will, you know, I'm thinking about the concept. Like, you know, if I'm thinking about the concept of a giant, still, uh, you know, motionless nebula, that's a little more sciencey and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to convey something like that. Th- not so much emotion in something like mm-hmm. that versus um, the chaos in which we are living in today and expressing today. How do I express that? You know, so it becomes less about what's the right chord to hit this for the chaos chord or something. It's more about what's the vibe going to be to create that. What's the framework that I can create through the vibe of the rhythm section, through the vehicle of the harmonic section that I'm using there. Um, is it going to be more solo? Is it going to be more uh, melody? What's that melody going to be like? Is it going to be more stable? Is it going to be more chaotic? Um, like For instance, um, Kepler's Law. That was, it's arguably the shortest piece of the entire work. Um, you know, where there's a bass intro and a, but like when it gets to the written part of things and Matt Arnoff, just a little shout out to Matt Arnoff and his wonderful bass intros. I, every album I'm going to, I swear now on this podcast, every album I do with Matt Arnoff on it, he will do a bass intro at some point. <laughs> Don't hold me to that, Matt. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, so when you get to the written part of it, it's probably the shortest thing. And there's no improvisation in it. It's all just, it's all composed, all written um, from from start to finish. And it was it's harmonically speaking, and certainly melodically speaking, and probably even rhythmically, like the three elements of music, it's probably, it's the simplest thing on the entire, uh, on the entire project. And it was a, the hardest thing to write out of all. It's the shortest, it's the simplest, and it was the hardest thing to write because it was so emotional. Like it was almost a hundred percent emotion with uh, just the idea of like you know. And what I was thinking about was you know the, the idea of Kepler's law. He was explaining um, the gravitational motions of all the planetary bodies around the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, again, very sciencey sort of concept, but, you know, I don't want this to be dry. I want this to be like the most emotional thing here. It's the ballad of the entire album. And thinking about just like one object, having gone through all of this chaos, hundreds of, you know, even billions of years earlier, now it's in a stable orbit, stable part of its existence orbiting gently around this uh you know this stellar body and trying to think about that and bring out the emotion of uh you know of that object being essentially an entity a person something with feelings with emotions and just you know traveling around telling a story that way so yeah that the um the emotional element of that that's that probably the piece uh in it that captures maybe the deepest one but then something else you mentioned that I want to get into, maybe this will be the last question, is uh, sometimes it's difficult to express these concepts with words. That, I think, is the greatness of art, actually, that kind of helps us, uh, you know, get away from that problem a little bit and think about how we can express these feelings that we think. But 
then how does that happen in the recording room, let's say, in the studio? Do you guys share conversations before you start playing and do these conversations inform the performances that will then be recorded? Yeah, I definitely like you know, um, people in the band will add you know, like Jared Schoenig, the drummer uh, on the album. Uh, you know, Jared was like, all right, B-Mac, what's this one about? Like, hit me. Like, tell me the story. Like he he was 100% serious. He wanted to know like, like that's going to help him inform how he's going to play. Uh, you know, Andy, Andy, actually a funny story with uh, Andy Gatowskis, a great baritone, a, you know, buddy of mine uh, since uh, since William Patterson days, saxophonist extraordinaire. Um, and we were, uh, we were recording something in, uh, for, for better angels and it, it featured him on it. Um, and it plays this great killing solo over it. And, you know, so it's like, cool, that's a take Great, right? Cool. Moving it. Cause like Linda's producing great. We're moving on great solo, Andy. Wonderful. And then Andy was asking me about like, what is this song? Uh, the, uh, Bonnie blue flag. And I was like, well, you know, it, it was a Confederate anthem of the time. It was, wait, it was a Confederate anthem. Like, why did you tell me that before I played the solo? I want to play the solo a lot different than that, you know, kind of thing. So it was like a learning moment to be like, all right, people want to be, you know, the, the artists themselves want to be informed of, you know, this isn't just like, hey, guys, let's play Beatrice and go, uh, you know, let's play some standards and just, you know, have a have a jazz battle sort of thing. Say what we got to say. Like, we're, we're at that point of learning, you know, like the, the concept of the project, the concept of the piece, even the concept of this section of the piece helps inform the artist, uh, you know, into how they're going to go forward and do that. So, yeah, certainly the musicians themselves like knowing that, you know, we've learned that they like knowing that, uh, you know, what we're trying to convey and it helps inform them. But also like having Linda Little in the studio producing the album and this isn't again it's it's not just her name is on there for credit purposes like she's in there in the recording studio listening to the tracks as they're going through like nah, no the vibe yeah we're not hitting that vibe can we get a little bit more energy in this section can we like it's not quite getting to the emotional state that it needs for etc etc for this piece so that's a that's an that's a I don't want to say it's a lost art, but I don't think a lot of people do that uh, now. I, and, and for certain reasons, you know, like they can't afford to bring in a producer uh, to record their albums. Maybe they don't have someone that they trust as much as Linda and I trust each other to get to what we're both after. Um, but having someone like that in the studio behind the artist to say, "Yeah, we're moving on. That was great. Let's let's hit uh, the next one." or uh, maybe we need to take lunch. We're not going to you know, like take three, you know, we're kind of, we're not, we haven't figured out the vibe for the, you know, so like, it's great to have that, that person there behind you that you trust to do that. The voice of honesty. If there is a criticism yeah. that needs to be said, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Very, very on. And we're all, we're all used to, we're like, Ooh, yeah. boss man just said we need to do another take. So let's do another take totally totally well brian it's been fascinating speaking with you thanks very much for sharing all these behind the scenes stories it's always great to kind of hear about what goes on in the making of these amazing projects and i do emphasize that this is an amazing project eye-opening it led me to thinking about so many things and i think that's kind of part of what <laughs> you intended right with this album this is something that you listen to but you kind of want it to become part of part of one's thoughts and just influence them yeah. <laughs> uh, after yeah, this. That, that human connection. That human connection. Thanks very much, Ryan. Yeah, man. I appreciate it.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brian McCarthy. His latest album, Afterlife, is available now. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz Is Vinyl Club. Join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you. Just go to jazzis.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as music from Brian McCarthy's latest non-ed album, Afterlife, plays us out, I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazz Ace podcasts, our print magazine, and other great content available to you on our regularly updated website, jazzace.com. And if you like what you see, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt Mikuchi signing off. See you soon. See you soon.